Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi and I are very excited that uh, our friend Molly Zhang Fast is with us today. Molly is a writer, political commentator, and the host of the podcast Fast Politics with Molly Zhang Fast. She's also a Vanity Fair columnist and the author of three books. Uh, and we all, the three of us, met on the same day, really at, because of Ravi. So, Ravi, take it from here. Explain that, if you would. Yeah, this was day one. I think it was December 10th, 2016. It was day one of Arena Summit. And we were all getting together right after Trump was elected. Jason, you were coming off of your election. You were giving a speech that night where I actually introduced you. And we had never met before. And this was the first speech you gave after the Senate election. And it was a group of like four to 500 people coming together to say, all right, what are we going to do next after Trump's election? And it was people who would go on to just great things. Molly, you being one of them, Jason. Lauren Underwood. Haley Stevens, Lena Hidalgo. I mean, there were just all these people in the room who went on to run for office and many are still holding their office, holding their seats. It was such a beautiful day. Yeah, I remember meeting Lauren Underwood and being just blown away by her. For those who don't know, now uh, Congresswoman just reelected to her second or third term? Third Third term, yeah. yeah. From like a tough district in Illinois. Was she flipped that district? Yeah, right. She did, yeah. And yeah, I, you look at all those candidates were super successful in that round. You know, Chrissy Houlihan, Andy Kim, Lauren Underwood, Alyssa Slack, and they're all holding their seats. And, and at the time, it was all just people who were like working in other fields, mostly not politics. Uh, you know, I was like, I was there speaking about politics. So obviously, that's where I was coming. Ravi, you were coming from your political sabbatical uh, in which you yeah. were running schools in the South. And, and so, um, I think we just thought it would be interesting to start this uh, recognizing that now that we are almost six years to the day from the day the three of us met, it's been kind of an interesting journey the last six years. Uh, And especially now that Trump's uh, arc in this this season of America seems to be, you know, cresting and and on on a downward slide, hopefully, how do we like, how do we think about how would you describe this period of time, Molly? Like, I mean, so I would say I think that the election of Trump was a shock to everyone, wherever they came from. Right. We had I mean, most if you think about think about like there was no one there was almost no one in America who thought that Trump would win. Right. I mean, like the Times had him at like 20 percent or so, you know. So I think it was like a real shock to all of us. And I think 
what it did in a way. And I mean, I also think part of it, you know, because Obama was such a was such a once in a lifetime politician and because Democrats had had a couple of those once in a lifetime politicians. Right. Like I think Clinton was also like that, you know, where they could win in ways that were almost un unrecreatable replicable yeah yeah that, couldn't replicate right and, that, in, and in places that right we, yeah yeah that uh democrats were uniquely unprepared for the trump election and it and i think some of us like for for example for me i was you know because i live on a coast and you know i don't think i understood just the level of uh I I really think I mean, look, there's certainly racism for sure in Trumpism, but some of it was this kind of rage against against a global economy. Right. This mm -hmm. fury that they were being left behind. And I think that was also racist. Right. Like, I think it it all existed, you know, in a sort of complicated, um, you know, cycle of racism and and fear and, you know, and isolation. Well, racism, you're right, because racism, while it certainly was present and, and thematic in the in the 2016 Trump campaign, I mean, we all know like what he said about Mexicans when he came down the escalator and everything, but it wasn't as central to to the Trump messaging as it is now. Like now it's really become quite synonymous with, with Trumpism to the point where we, if you were to describe where where Trumpism sits, where MAGA politics sit within the Republican Party, it, it would be impossible to describe it without race being a part of it. Right. Whereas at that time, that's not really how it was perceived uh, because there was, you know, people still didn't know how to compartmentalize it. Everybody was still talking about economic anxiety and all these things. And so I think that's why we were just like, what is this? What do we do about this? More than anything, it just felt really helpless. I also think that the country, the thing I was struck by that I didn't understand as someone who lived on the coast was just the level of that a lot of Americans felt they had been left behind. There was like a rage there that, you know, and I mean, I read, you know, I've read reporting that says like there, you know, there these are people who like voted for Obama. Staten Island is a good example. You know, is it Obama Trump district? But it reminds me of the Brexit slogan, right? If you remember what the Brexit slogan was, it was take back control. And I think it was such a clever slogan because it spoke to people who had different motivations for it, right? Of course, there were the racist, the anti-immigrant folks and all that, but also spoke to people who weren't racist, who were like, you know what? I feel the world slipping away. I see my kid at the breakfast table staring at their phone. I see my job getting automated. I, I see my country's sovereignty being diluted. And now I have to negotiate with people like Viktor Orban in Hungary or, you know, Erdogan in Turkey just to like, you know, regulate the price of gasoline or something. And Take Back Control spoke to all those people. It spoke to the racists, but also the people who are kind of economic populists or just people who are very frustrated. And I think that it reminds me a lot of Make America Great Again. But I think like what we've seen, and this is probably a good transition to Georgia, you know, we had such a great result last night. We're recording this on Wednesday. We now have netted one Senate seat in this election. This is now three election cycles in a row that we've had a fairly successful, I mean, not totally successful in the ways that we wanted, but 2018, 2020, now 2022, we've now seen three successful elections in a row since that time when we met, right? So something is going right here. And if I remember the speeches 
throughout that weekend, Molly and Jason, I think, Jason, you said this in your speech. I certainly said it in my speech that opening night. Molly, this is something that you and I worked on for years in the aftermath of that is we talked about the authenticity gap within our politics and the need to find authentic candidates within the Democratic Party. And if you look at 2022, it's almost like a crescendo of this movement to find people like Warnock, find people like Fetterman, find people like Shapiro, who are authentic candidates who don't all fit the same mold, but who are real to who they are. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I also think that Democrats went you know, far to get candidates who were authentically of their places, right? Like you heard, you, it's impossible to hear that Warnock acceptance speech, his his 17th acceptance speech in five years or whatever. I mean, the man, you know, there's a statistic that he's raised more money than like any non, you know, anyone ever, but that's because he's had like 5 million elections. But that guy, you know, he is very much, you know, in his speech, he talks about how, you know, he comes from this world of Georgia, right? Like his parents, he's seen the worst of Georgia and the best of of Georgia and that that's really like the American dream. And, and you know, we saw that uh, Herschel Walker had actually been, yeah, you know, the, he, he wasn't even living in the house he was claiming was his residency in 2021, you know, I mean, and we saw that with, I mean, Dr. Oz voted in the the Turkish elections in 2018. I mean, it's not like 2000. <laughs> it's like three years ago. It's like the ultimate carpet bag. It's right. like a, it's an international carpet bag. I, you know, it's really interesting when you think about yeah what we've learned in terms of the authenticity, which is which is funny because it's actually learning not to think so hard and try so hard, you know, just because if I were to think back to 2016, 2017, even 2018, when people were recruiting candidates, if you were to say to somebody, well, we have a preacher, uh, a black preacher who, uh, you know, preaches from the pulpit uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. preached from, and he's going to run in Georgia, you know, the conventional wisdom would be like, no, no, no. See, you, you got to have Zell Miller, the white guy with the draw who has half his positions are right wing. And but that was and, and there's still obviously people who believe that. And that's a big debate that we don't need to get into because we're not talking really about moderate or progressive. What we're talking about is authentic because and to make that point, you know, you had Mark Kelly in Arizona was the strongest possible candidate is in many respects a moderate, but also is like comes to it so honestly. I mean, it's a guy who he's moderate because like he came up in the military and in the space program and didn't really, he wasn't a political figure. And so he didn't have a, a deeply ingrained set of partisan convictions. And so he's not a guy out there playing a moderate. Like people are like, yeah, this guy seems like he would be. He culturally, he comes from that. So I think you're right, Robbie, that we've learned all that. What I'm also interested in is where you all feel like we are now compared to then. Whereas here, here's the journey I think we've gone on emotionally. 2016 was how could our country want this guy? How could the, how could people who we know in, in our communities vote for this person into 2018 where it's like, Oh, okay. Well, maybe people don't like how he's doing. Uh, that's good. There's some hope here moving into 2020. And it's like, okay, we got to save democracy. And we did save democracy, but democracy really still seems quite in peril. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen 2022. Okay, now democracy was on the brink and we seem to have saved it, but 
it's hanging by a thread. So it's like we've traveled this journey from how could people vote for this guy to are people going to be allowed to vote in the future? And I don't know how I feel about it. It feels like progress, but not progress. Yeah, I can't tell whether we're in Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi here. Like, right. I, I think this 2024 election is a little scary if you look ahead to it, not to to kill the mood. But we've got so much defense. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, whether it's West Virginia, Ohio, Arizona, Montana. We have almost no pickup opportunities in the Senate, so it's going to be tough. The House looks a little bit better. Like, we could probably win back a lot of these seats in New York, for example, that we should have won. And then you've got the potential of a DeSantis candidacy, which is for all of his faults. And I agree with people like Mark Leibovich that he's more flawed than people realize yet is unquestionably going to bring different challenges to the Democratic Party if he's nominated than Trump does, like does not have all the Trump baggage, maybe doesn't have all the Trump strengths, but certainly doesn't have all the Trump baggage. And then we will have a president in Biden who will you know, be defending a record that I think is pretty strong so far, but that gives people fodder. Miley, how do you, when you look ahead to 2024, what's your level of, of hope versus alarm right now? Oh God, didn't we just, I mean, the midterms literally ended <laughs> yesterday. I mean, and Jesus fucking, excuse my French, we're not supposed to curse. It's okay. It is a very Democrat thing for us to do. Okay, we won. How scared are you? <laughs> I mean, you know, look, the biggest danger right now to democracy is the Supreme Court, right? We have five very emboldened, insane, deeply demented Supreme Court justices. And then we have one who is like, shh, shh, do it quietly. I'm not against it. Just do it quietly. Right. You have the Justice Roberts, right? The one Koch brothers uh, Supreme Court justice. But yeah, I mean, no, look, I mean, things, so much has happened in the two years since Trump lost. And, you know, the stat, you know, he's very, very diminished right now. But, you know, it doesn't mean he's not going to come back. I mean, it's just I think like it's possible to both underestimate Trump and Biden. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck and, and navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure. It can have you feeling like you're you're in limbo. You're between two things. And, and sometimes it's really difficult to just figure out why am I feeling this way? That's one of the things I struggle with. And oftentimes when I go to see my therapist, I'm like, you know what? I can't seem to put a finger on why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. I think I'll go talk to my therapist about it. And that usually works. So if you've been feeling that way, and perhaps you've never tried therapy, perhaps you have, either way, I think you should give BetterHelp a shot. Yeah, and as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable, so just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com M54. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? 
Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the U.S. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks how we can make our voting system more inclusive, because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of Trump, one thing that's happened since the last time we recorded was he called for a suspension of the Constitution. This was in relation to Elon Musk releasing information to Matt Tybee about Twitter's role in limiting the Hunter Biden story. And, and Trump had the following to say. So he said, so with the revelation of, you know, there's some all caps going on here, but massive and widespread fraud and deception. I would like companies. you to read the all caps like they're all caps. No, Please I take can't it from do the it. Top. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, big tech companies, the DNC, the Democratic Party. Do you throw the presidential election of 2020 out? and declare the rightful winner. Okay, I'm trying. Or do you have a new election? All right, so basically he's just, you know, he's doing his Trump things. Less, in, less interesting is what Trump said than how people reacted to it. You had a very predictable reaction where the Ben Sasses of the world who are retiring had pretty pointed things to say. And then you had the Josh Hollies and the Lindsey Graham types who were really trying to pivot back to the original thing that Trump was responding to, which is this Hunter Biden thing Molly, I think it's good timing to have you on here because I think you're a, a good student of the media in general. I to see if you have any interesting takes on both the the Hunter Biden revelations and how Musk handled it and the decision to give it to Tybee, but then also like, is there anything to see here in terms of what Trump had to say and how Republicans reacted to it, or is it just you know chapter one hundred in the you know Republicans downplaying crazy things Trump says? Wait. The revelations? Wait, what were the revelations? Tell me. I'm excited. I know. <laughs> They're really worried is kind of the point. That's what well, I said. I didn't yeah. understand because it was like everyone got so excited and they were like, they're going to be these revelations. And it was like, the you know, you can say in this current media environment, you can say something is a big deal and not have it be a big deal and get people to repeat that it's a big deal. Right. So like. I mean, I, look, in my mind, I'm almost like I would be more interested if there was some like amazing smoking gun and maybe there will be, you know, so far now. Well, I think what I take away from from all this and from what you just said is like, you know, they had a, a difficult time, but they pulled it off making her emails a big deal. Right. Like, you know, but her emails, better emails. Because I think it's pretty accessible for the average person to, even though there was nothing to that, but it's accessible for the average person to, in their imagination, come up with what that is. They're, oh, well, she has secret emails and she was doing things. And But more importantly, what you had there was the context of all the way going back to Whitewater of Americans being told over and over again, almost always without any actual evidence that there was this corruption that surrounds the Clintons, right? So, so it fit into that box and every American has an email address. So they're okay, I get it. I'm like a Twitter super user. I use it way too much as my wife regularly points out. I pay very close attention to, to politics. I don't really understand what the full accusations are for Hunter. So I think you're right without a smoking gun. 
it is a much higher challenge for them to make something feel like something when there's act because you're right they don't have to make something or like nothing into something they have to make nothing feel like something and i do think that is more difficult and that i think is part of why you have so many of these republicans right now more willing to distance themselves from trump combined with the fact that frankly for now six years maybe eight years they've been dying to distance themselves from trump it's just been lethal politically to do so and so now more and more of them are going okay let's and they're in the writer's room saying can we finally kill off this character i mean and and maybe they can i mean i would say like you're in a situation where the republicans have been cowardly and they've had almost no interest in saying like it's enough trump because they don't want to alienate that 30% that they desperately need to win elections and and like trump was a huge driver of turnout and remember with Trump gone, like the you know, there were people who would only come out for Trump. And so they hoped the Democrats would do it, which, by the way, so brave, guys. Right. So brave. And, you know, I mean, like Democrats, I, I mean, I actually think like ultimately it was that Trump had to lose and not that Trump had to be impeached. So ultimately, Santos or someone else like that now has this sense that he could do whatever he wants. I think a big question is if it is DeSantis, which obviously, who knows, he's an interesting character because he does have a certain cultural cachet with the right in terms of his COVID politics and the anti-CRT stuff and, and whatnot. And I think trying not to repeat the underestimating that we did in 2016, a big just question I'll be asking over the course of the next year and a half is, is he able to build a movement politics around some of the decisions he made in Florida? And I think so many Democrats I know are like, you know, he's like an impersonator of Trump and yada, yada, yada. I'm not so sure because I know a lot of diehard DeSantis people in my life, you know, and they don't live in Florida. Some of them are like Staten Islanders whose small business was closed during COVID or whatever. There is a real strain of ideology behind who DeSantis is. He, he, unquestionably cynical about it. I'm not sure how much of a true believer he is about it, but none of that really matters. Like, I do think that there is an underlying opportunity for him to build a cohesive movement around his politics in Florida. And one thing I'm, I'm concerned about as we move forward is that people will underestimate that. I think Trump will certainly underestimate that, but I also think Democrats could, if, you know, he's barreling down the line, you know, and looking like the nominee. Yeah, I think DeSantis scares me because DeSantis is a guy who has democracy in his crosshairs exactly the same way uh, that Trump does, but he has like better discipline about when to fire. You know, like like DeSantis ain't going to issue a statement saying we should suspend the Constitution, right? But what he will do once in office or in Florida now is disenfranchise people who won't vote for him and and he'll put in that work years in advance as he has been that's what scares me and you know that ability to say like i'm gonna pick a fight with the media but i'm also gonna go out and do the things that people are used to seeing their politicians do and that i think is and i've talked about this a lot lately on this show that is the difference in somebody who has had to be a governor versus a legislator because desantis understands 
you go out and you pick those cultural battles the way Trump did, but you also have to do things where people go, oh, this is working. That's why one of the biggest arguments that people will make for DeSantis is about the economy in Florida. It's about how things went with COVID in Florida. Now, whether you credit DeSantis with that stuff or not, that's part of his message and his brand. And so I worry quite a lot about him. The only part about him that gives me any temptation to underestimate him is, frankly, his voice. I think it's grating <laughs> and annoying. And I think that and I think that that is that that's going to wear on people. And if he's I know it sounds petty, but like if he's overexposed in, in the media over the next you know 18 months as he gears up for this. I really genuinely think the sound of his voice will be problematic, whereas Trump had. Uh, despite being a person who was born into privilege, he sounded like a working class guy. And if Trump did not have a Queens accent, none of that would have ever happened. In my well, opinion. I mean, I would say Trump is charismatic, right? I mean, we don't like him. We don't want to give him credit here, but he's he's charismatic. He speaks to people, right? I think of DeSantis. I mean, look, part of that Leibowitz right around was that the idea that, you know, when you hear DeSantis, he doesn't he sounds like Ted Cruz, like nobody was hot to make Ted Cruz president. Right. He's been smart about staying out of the limelight and letting Trump, you know, bluster. But I don't I, I think the ultimate problem for DeSantis is that he just isn't that charismatic. You know, he's just another you know, I think he's a little smarter than Trump. I think he's a little more emboldened than a Ted Cruz. But I don't think he's like you know, a once in a lifetime candidate. And and I think that ultimately, I mean, also the other thing that I think we should talk about when you talk about Trump is Trump was willing to say things that no other political candidate was willing to say. And he wasn't bound by the truth. So like Hillary was like, um, you know, we're with her. Right. And Trump was like, I will do everything for you. I will bring back your coal plant. I will reopen all your factories. I will. You know, I mean, he just said shit that's not true. And so, like, Republicans don't have another person like that. It's true. It, it was like a student council election where one candidate was like, you know, we really need to balance the student council budget. And the other was like vending machines in the cafeteria all the time. Right. And I it's it's interesting. I feel like, Molly, I feel like DeSantis has learned half of that Trump lesson for that boldness. But it's it's an interesting half. He has not learned the say anything, and maybe because he probably can't pull it off. But what he has learned is the once you've said or done something, you never apologize. You You are always right. Yeah, right. This is where he's different than Cruz is, you know, I think we so much of our politics comes from our childhoods. And to me, it reminds me of just like the schoolyard, you know, like somebody somebody pushes you around. How do you react to it? What I see in DeSantis for all of his faults is that when he's on that debate stage, this is my prediction. If he if it, if we get to it and I Lord knows just for entertainment value, I hope we get there where Trump and DeSantis are on that stage together. My sense is he will not back down DeSantis in the way that Cruz he Cruz and Rubio and all these guys seemed almost like like, you know, like what's the the. Tyson saying everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. Like what became clear in the GOP primary 2016, where you had a bunch of these sort of bow tie wearing Republicans who were kind of stentorian and polished and all that, who weren't used to somebody coming direct at them that way. My sense is DeSantis will handle that much better. I think he'll be tougher. I think he'll stand up to Trump in, a, in the ways that other Republicans weren't willing to do. This is just my prediction. And I think that's what will make him different in a way 
the one thing he doesn't have that Trump has is humor, from what I've seen. Trump makes even liberals laugh sometimes. People don't want to admit it, but there are times, like when he called it desanctimonious or whatever, like Trump, nobody, nobody likes to talk about this. Trump is a sociopath. He's a terrible human being. He's funny. He's sometimes funny at the expense, often at the expense of the downtrodden. And sometimes his humor is laced with very, very offensive ideas. But he, without a doubt, has a gift for humor. It's the difference between being a very talented politician and being an entertainer who went into politics. And I guess it's yet to be seen whether or not Americans are still bored enough by everything that they prefer to be entertained. Because if if it turns out that's what they prefer, well, then we're going to need like The Rock, as much as I hate to say it, to run. You know what I mean? Like, so. I mean, that's the other thing that is worth thinking about is that Republicans picked a celebrity, right? Democrats never, ever do that. And I think that's something, you know, sort of worth thinking about. You know what it is? If it happens on the Democratic side, it'll be in the Zelensky mold. It'll right. be it'll be a John Stewart. It'll right. be it'll be somebody like that. It, it'll be somebody. Mark Cuban. Who, Cuban oh, is kind of no, like celebrity business. Stop huh? it. Oh. Matthew McConaughey. No. I mean, McConaughey is yeah. a mess, though. Like, I think it would be hard for uh, as much as it doesn't make sense. It would be hard for Democrats to trust somebody who came to their celebrity through their business acumen. And and I don't. Yeah. And it's not something I'm proud to say. I mean, if McConaughey wants to run for governor of Texas. OK. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. 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 Well, Molly, uh, let's let's let me send you off. I do have to say, as you leave, that you did so much for me in the aftermath of the 2016 election. You know, we used to hop around Manhattan together. You'd introduce me to all the fancy people, you know, really helped get Arena off the ground. And so as we we get to our six year anniversary, I just want to say thank you for for being in our corner. I was looking at the weather app this morning, and I saw that it's going to be in the 60s in New York, where Ravi is next week, 60 degrees in December in New York. And I guess that's our new reality with climate change. But we just saw a record number of Gen Z voters turn out of the polls, which gives me incredible hope. Gen Z and their commitment to the planet is why I'm so excited about our partner, Ren. Ren is a website where you calculate your carbon footprint, then offset it by funding projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, and remove carbon dioxide from the sky. Signing up for RIN is an easy way to start actually doing something about the climate crisis. By answering a few questions about your lifestyle on RIN, you can find out your carbon footprint and how you can reduce it. No one can reduce their carbon footprint to zero, so you can offset what you have left after reducing. Once you sign up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you receive monthly updates from the tree planting, rainforest protection, and carbon removal projects you support. You get to see the trees you planted and what your money is spent on. It will take a lot to end the climate crisis, and you can start helping today by learning more on rin.co slash majority54. That's rin, W-R-E-N, dot co slash majority54. If you sign up using our link and tell Rin we sent you, Rin will plant 10 extra trees in your name. That's rin.co slash majority54 to get started. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. Ravi uses literally every day. That's right, listeners. We're talking about taking athletic greens. Yeah, Jason, and I'm gearing up for my annual pilgrimage to Costa Rica, and I'm just hoarding my athletic greens, hoping the folks there at Customs don't stop me. And honestly, I think what will bring me back into this country is whenever I run out of my athletic greens supply. And right now, 
You can reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health. Pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, Jason, we've got a pretty busy week in the world of the Supreme Court. So, you know, Molly had mentioned the Supreme Court politics and and how just extreme the Supreme Court has gotten. There there are two notable things, and actually there's more than two, but two that I want to talk about today that are really important. One is that the Supreme Court granted cert, so they're going to be hearing this case around the Biden student loan relief. And the the background here is that it's actually very Missouri specific. So in St. Louis, there was a district court that ruled in favor of the Biden administration, basically saying that the group of, I think it was six states, GOP states, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina, that challenged the Biden student, student loan relief, that they didn't have standing to bring the case, meaning they, they didn't have any wrong to be righted there. But then the appeals court in Missouri overturned that and blocked the implementation of the student loan relief. Now, what's notable is that the Supreme Court stepped in and said they're going to be hearing this case in February. They're fast-tracking it, but they are leaving in place the injunction. So what this means is that all of these borrowers, something like 26 million borrowers and $400 billion worth of funding at issue here is all on pause right now, the relief for them, as the Supreme Court hears this case, which means that at the earliest, people will get relief in June if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Biden administration. But if the Supreme Court... Uh, rules against the Biden administration, no student loan relief. And, and in all likelihood, they're not going to rule in favor, right? So, you know, I was reading some of the articles about it and how, like, there's somebody saying, well, look, they went they went after it through this law, and that that's, you know, very going to be very difficult to defend. They should have gone at it through this law. And I'm sorry, like, I'm cynical enough about the Supreme Court at this point that I'm like, look, they did a very big thing, whether they whether you have a good case or not to say that they had legal authority, they did a very big thing that everybody understands traditionally, regardless of their authority, would have been done by Congress. And it's a very big thing that conservatives don't like. The chances that the Supreme Court leaves it in place, I think, given all that, are pretty minimal, regardless of what the legal path they took to it was, which is really tragic for a lot of people who thought they were going to come out from under, no matter what you your position is on on the policy. If there's people who thought that they were going to come out from under their debt, which there are, and who have been maybe planning accordingly, or or just the emotional roller coaster of this, that's going to be very difficult on a lot of people. And then, as far as the politics of it go, look, obviously, it was probably a very big boon politically to the Democrats in the midterms, and it'll happen early enough in the two year cycle that it it may not be a huge factor in the next election, although student loan debt always is um, for some people. So my question is going to be like, what is the proper response? Is it to just go go to Congress and say, let's come up with something we can do together? It's going to be really, really drawn back if you can get it done at all. Yeah. I mean, the key is to put legislation, this is where Schumer, the 51 votes could be very helpful because we're not power sharing anymore. Put legislation on the floor of the Senate to address this issue, make Republicans vote against it, which they will, so that you not only are running 
you know, there's this sort of secondary politics of they appoint the Supreme Court justices and the Supreme Court justices are radical. I think we've now been conditioning the electorate to understand that more and more. And I think this midterm election was a reflection of that. But if you can combine that with direct votes that vulnerable Republicans have to take on this, you put those two things together and you're like, all right, now you are on record denying real people, real benefits, 26 million people, and never mind their family members who stand to benefit from this, make the politics real for them, right? And, you know, it is it is tricky because what's happening with the Biden administration is there's a filibuster. They can't get anything done. And so they're they're finding wording within statutes to take bold action. And in this case, they had to use this HEROES Act from 2003, which allows in certain cases of emergency for the Department of Education to make major changes to student loans. And so basically the Biden administration had to do this two-step, which makes me very skeptical that this Supreme Court, this is the Supreme Court that that overturned the eviction moratorium and vaccine mandate under kind of similar lines. My sense is that this court is going to be like Biden went on 60 minutes, said the pandemic is over, but he's still trying to use pandemic emergency declarations to justify a major move. There's all sorts of legalese around this major questions doctrine and the West Virginia EPA case that we talked about previously on this pod, which I won't go into here. But all the signs are there that if I were a betting man, I wouldn't say it's 90 percent that they're going to overturn this, but I would say it's greater than 50 percent that they're going to stop the Biden administration, which is a real shame because like the Biden administration has extended the uh, moratorium on payments. But it's at some point, the Biden administration is not going to be able to ward off this for much longer if the Supreme Court stands in their way. So here's an interesting question, both politically and from a policy perspective. If it goes down this way, the administration can go back to issuing a moratorium on actual payments, right? They can't they can't absolve the debt. They can't forgive the debt, but they can say, look, as long as I'm in the White House, you're not going to have to make these payments, which might give you leverage to actually try and get something done in Congress because it creates a scenario where you're able to make a very simple, very black and white case in your reelection campaign, which is if the other guy wins, you have to start making these payments again. If I win, you don't. Because once you get to the point where he was wanting to forgive your debt, well, what's the difference between, I mean, obviously with your credit and everything, there's a difference, but like, as far as whether the money comes into the government, like there's not really a math difference in saying, I'm, we're just not going to make you make the payments. Uh, right. So, so it, it would make sense to continue that policy, I would think. Yeah. And, and it, it once again makes the politics real. So if mm-hmm. we're, if we're heading towards 2024 and one candidate in Biden is like, I'm going to extend this, these more, this moratorium and continue to fight to erase it. And then another candidate is I'm going to sunset it. Then that makes it real for everybody who's holding that debt. Mm-hmm. Right. It it gives you a very tangible issue to run on. And so I think the politics of that will not be great for the GOP. And, you know, I've talked about this before. I have complicated views about how I would want to design this program. Like I would I would have used student loan relief to accomplish more structural changes to our higher education system, if possible. But I think this what the Supreme Court is doing here is an, is, is at, at least in some ways just lends wait to people who are just like, just be bold and, and it almost like they're going to st- try to stop you no matter what. Like, so it, the version of my program might've been even more subject to legal challenge if it wasn't done through Congress, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, it's not like there's a, a version of this where the Republicans are not going to oppose it and where, you know, right. Republican attorneys general are not going to try and get clicks off of it and that sort of thing. Well, let's talk quickly about another case. There's not much to say about this case, but there's this <laughs> or at least enough that we, we wouldn't. There's either an hour long segment or a five minute conversation about this. I think right now we're going to have the five minute conversation about it. But there's this case that the Supreme Court heard this week that involves a Colorado web designer fighting the state's discrimination law. And basically, this web designer wants to be able to discriminate against same-sex couples who want websites for their weddings. Now, what's interesting is this person actually hasn't been faced with this choice yet, but is just kind of suing preemptively, which is fascinating. Like, the obvious hypotheticals here are, well, could you like then say you don't want to design websites for interracial couples or whatever, right? This is like the lunch counter stuff. Like, obviously, we have a history in our country of saying you cannot do that. And it, it set the stage, Jason, for a very strange series of oral arguments that involved hypotheticals involving the Ashley Madison website, J-Date, kids dressing up in KKK outfits and sitting on Santa's lap. I mean, the amount of hypotheticals that came out were super awkward and only lent evidence for the fact that we have a very old and out-of-touch Supreme Court. Well, I mean, evidenced by the fact that they granted cert to this, which seems to be an issue that the rest of America has mostly moved past. I mean, like, right. we're pretty far past whatever that lady's name was, who was a clerk in Kentucky who, like, wouldn't issue the marriage licenses. Right. I mean, the Senate just voted the other day to say, like, hey, Supreme Court, no matter what you do, we're going to make sure same-sex marriage stays codified. Isn't that the very nature of to have a conservative Supreme Court? I mean, the, the root of conservatism is don't change. And... It's funny when you think about how old and out of touch like senators seem like like when you see like senators have to do like a hearing on tech and like, you know, Grassley's like, so when I put in the AOL floppy disk, this yeah. is, you know, and and then then you take the people who those people appoint to lifetime appointments, people who don't have to worry about their digital portrayal or their social media presence, like they're not going to know a damn thing. <laughs> so I don't know. They're. they're they're they don't really understand. They didn't get the 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 playbook change that said, "Hey, we moved on to trans people uh, on the right." I want to close by addressing an email we got from a listener. This is from Kathy, and she was responding to something I said last week around how we as a society are prone to sticking old people in nursing homes. And I talked about my mother, who's been a nurse on nursing home wards essentially her entire life. And uh, Kathy wrote back saying, you know, she, both of her parents died after stints in rehab and nursing homes. And so uh, she talked about essentially like she had no choice to do it. And so I think this is a really important point and, and an opportunity to clarify what I meant by my statement, which was I was talking about a general trend in society where it's not necessarily the act of putting parents in nursing homes. Although, you know, part of my experience, you know, I spent a lot of time on these nursing home wards is that Sometimes we're too quick to to put our parents into nursing homes, and there are other societies that that work harder to keep people at home and also are better about providing resources for at-home care. But more importantly, that whether you're faced with the forced choice to put somebody in a nursing home or not, from my experience and my mom's experience, there were just far too many people whose family wouldn't visit them. And also the design of nursing homes sometimes is really tough or we're not creating a communal 
environment or a great experience for the elderly. And there's a really good book written about this called How to Live Forever that looks at innovative approaches to nursing homes. All of this is to say that that was not meant as a blanket statement about how people treat their parents. And so there are people who have no choice, like Kathy, than to put their parents in nursing homes. There are people who went above and beyond and visited their parents all the time. Uh, and there are also nursing homes, and that book does a really good job of this, that are bucking the trend and providing communal positive experiences for the elderly. So I wanted, I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you, Kathy, for both sharing your experience and also for people out there who've had no choice but to send their parents in and who do visit their parents and spend time with them. Like, that was definitely not meant as a dig for you. Okay, we very much appreciate Kathy's email and everybody else who responds to the show. Uh, you can do so yourself, m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. That's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. We may play it on the air, 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. Uh, as always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter, and now also this thing, Post. And Molly is at Molly Jong Fast, uh, M-O-L-L-Y-J-O-N-G-F-A-S-T. Uh, on Twitter and our show is at majority 54 on Twitter uh, also I'll just throw this in just for fun people may enjoy this there's this sports podcast um, called the podcast the podcast it's Joe Poznanski who's a baseball writer and then Mike Schur who people will know is the creator of the good place and one of the um, main writers of the office the creator of Parks and Rec uh, and they have this hilarious podcast they do together that I listen to all the time and every year I get to participate in their holiday draft one of the things they do on the show is they just draft random things. Uh, this year, the topic was holiday lyrics. I have no reason to plug this other than I think you'll enjoy listening to uh, this random group of people argue over holiday song lyrics. Anyway, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, Adesua Agbenile, and Sarah Schleed. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.